0: Greetings and welcome to Mystical America, also known as your grandma's favorite podcast. I'm your family friendly, 100% drug free host, Isaac Hill, and I want to apologize. We've had a little bit of a delay in putting out this podcast this week, but that's because we're doing something different this week. We've got a guest on the show. And that's right. He goes by the name of Gabe. He's got a podcast you should definitely check out. It's called Mormons, Mystics, and Muons. And so if you've ever been curious or if you've never been curious until now about the connections between Mormonism, the New Age, non-duality, psychedelics, quantum physics, channeled writing, and more... Well, first, you should listen to Gabe and I talking on our podcast today. And then you got to head over to his podcast and his Substack, which I am going to link in the description for all you lovely listeners. What he's doing is so, so fascinating. And I also believe it's part of a much larger trend of religious reintegration and recontextualization. But I'm going to save. Most of that for later. For now, I have a brief announcement to make. If you've ever been listening to this show and you've thought to yourself, wow, I really want to be on this mystical America thing, well, I have news for you. This could be your opportunity to promote your ghost hunting business or your career as a cult leader this could take you to the big time. I'm looking for guests. If you've got experience with new religious movements, new age movements, occult orders, channelers, charismatic churches, cults, ashrams, spiritual communes, or other forms of spirituality and high strangeness in the United States, I would love for you to chat with me. doesn't matter if your experience or opinion was positive or negative, I just want to hear from you. So, if you're interested in coming on this little show of mine, give me an email at mysticalamericapod at gmail.com. That's mysticalamericapod at gmail.com. Now that we got that covered, let me just give you a description from Gabe's podcast, Mormons, Mystics, and Muons just so you know what you're getting into here. We focus on reconstruction and recontextualization by examining an integrative narrative of Mormonism's origins. We utilize our collective knowledge of Mormon studies, consciousness, Jungian psychology, philosophy, psychedelics, esoteric traditions, magic, Eastern religion, and quantum physics to unpack what happened. Along the way, we'll help you deconstruct and reconstruct the nature of reality, exploring the mystical, but staying grounded in rational thought and minimizing the hand waving. All are welcome from Orthodox believers to post Mormons. All right, go ahead, pour yourself up a Sprite or some other non caffeinated beverage, and let's talk Mormon mysticism with Gabe. Enjoy, everyone.
1: Mystical America. Mystical
0: America. Mystical America. Mystical America. Okay, great to have you on, Gabe. So, I wanted to ask you my what's going to be my opening question. For each episode because this is just kind of what I already ask everybody I meet in general which is did you grow up in a spiritual or religious household and if so can you tell us a little bit about what that looked like for you
1: yeah so I grew up um raised Mormon Uh, both of my parents were converts to Mormonism my mom when she was a teenager dad when he was an adult um and he had left he ended up leaving Mormonism had his own um somewhat of a spiritual awakening but Mm -hmm. um that led him out of Mormonism and has his own kind of eclectic somewhat esoteric but um Not quite his own variation of beliefs, Um, so so it was interesting. You know, my mom was a faithful Mormon, and so I sort of had to uh, reconcile what I was learning in church um, with stuff that my dad was telling me. But yeah, raised um, pretty uh, run of the mill Mormon, very black and white thinking and um went through went on a mission served in montana and wyoming uh went to brigham young university out in utah and um got sealed in the temple and um recently separating going through a divorce and that kind of uh influenced my faith transition too but kind of uh Yeah, all in for quite a long time.
0: So I wanted to ask, did you have any mystical, quote-unquote, experiences while you were in the Mormon church? Is that, and I I mean mystical very loosely here, I guess, in Mm. terms of sort of direct spiritual contact or something like that, and is that something that's common in the uh, Mormon church? Because, like, I grew up evangelical, And we had things like being slain in the spirit or speaking in tongues that I saw. Do you say slain? Slain. Slain, like it's kind of like people Uh, use the Holy Spirit to, um, I I don't really uh, know how to explain that other than people kind of pass out shaking and convulsing from the power of the Holy Spirit, which all looks very silly, but you know, I can remember going to church camp and having what i feel like now Mm -hmm. was like a trance almost possession sort of ritual in hindsight i guess happening but i was i was curious whether there's i guess room for those not necessarily those experiences but if there are times when you felt there was like immense spiritual power around you or anything like that while you were in the mormon church
1: for me no uh Funny uh, because all of my yeah mystical experiences actually start occurring. I mean, I I'd left activity in Mormonism six years ago, and yeah, no, no spiritual experiences there. And it wasn't until I actually moved in the opposite direction of, um, I guess, a, a belief in a traditional god and kind of started flirting with atheism and uh, that mystical experience started happening. Um, I had no knowledge of it, but um, it's interesting because Mormonism does, yeah, I guess the most spiritual experience I had in Mormonism was one time I lost my wallet and I like Mm -hmm. looked everywhere for it in um, (laughs) this pretty lame in my apartment at college and then like kneeled down and prayed and then stood up, and my wallet was right there next to me. Um, so that's about as like, and and that's not mystical at all. But it's interesting because Mormonism does have a heavy emphasis on feeling states, and um, you know, in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is scripture given to Joseph Smith. It talks about like a burning in the bosom, and so this is one of the criticisms that a lot of mainstream Christians. Um, levy against mormons is like oh you're you're being deceived because you're just trusting like your feelings and that can be manipulated whereas we trust the bible Uh, but yeah mormonism is is ripe for that um and have a very mystical origins but definitely uh went corporate essentially i um, mean i think that's fairly early on
0: i think that's something that happens in within christianity too because I have definitely seen debates amongst various sects about, oh, how much should this charismatic, um, direct experience of the Holy Spirit, is it just people mumbling and saying complete nonsense, or Mm -hmm. is it actually direct contact with divinity? And I think there's a lot of back and forth about how much people should trust those, those feelings, I guess. But to me... And when I was asking, I guess if you had a mystical experience, I did want to clarify that I didn't necessarily mean was it a legitimate one. Like, did you actually? Have, mm. But just like something that you've perceived as, you know, a spiritual experience at the time, because I feel like, yeah, we all have kind of that innate capacity to experience those things, whether they're legitimate or not is an issue for another time. But
1: yeah, I mean, there's you. You'll hear in Mormon church meetings, um, one Sunday a month they have sacrament meeting or a fast and testimony meeting, which is essentially where you get get up, you can get up and share your quote-unquote testimony. Um, and oftentimes people will share stories about, oh, this happened, I, like I got a prompting to call this person and then when I called them, they were going through this uh, experience. And so you'll hear a lot of those stories um, or, you know, Mormons wear garments, and you'll hear stories about how so and so was in a fire and then they were burned everywhere except the garments. And so there are a lot of people within Mormonism that have those types of experiences. And I think they're um, people with character traits that are more open to that. And you see that in like psychedelic and spontaneous spiritual awakening research that certain character traits lead people to be more. Um, able to have those experiences and drop into meditation, guided meditations. So there is that aspect. I was always very skeptical, and I would discount a lot of those things because I was very much a rational, skeptical, um, science-based left-brain person.
0: So do you feel that, because you mentioned having more mystical experiences now, quote-unquote mystical experiences now, what opened you up? To the idea of that being a possibility.
1: Um, I mean, it it actually happened kind of reverse in that I experienced them, and then I was like, "Oh, I got to figure out like what this is, and like how the hell I reconcile this with scientific, um, rational, skeptical thought." So for me, it was. Um, sp- uh initiated by you know going through the separation and getting into psychology actually and learning about attachment and just how we ex- can experience reality different based on our childhoods and then um and then just getting into nonviolent communication that that's kind of a whole paradigm shift of how our language language constructs of our language um influence our whole society and um started getting into meditation listening to sam harris's meditations on waking up and and it was funny because it was like well i'm i guess i'm because i had floated around in agnosticism basically i was like well you know mormon mormonism doesn't add up i finally opened myself up to considering you know accepting what i sort of worried i knew all along um And then just float around agnosticism, ironically, thinking like, oh, if we we had things figured out, like, people would know it already. Yeah. And then it wasn't until, like, getting.
0: I think that's, yeah, I was just going to say that's kind of where I ended up in my faith journey as well, too, was just starting to be like, well, who the hell really knows? Because there's so Mm -hmm. many people out there claiming that they have the truth that eventually it just got to be. Kind of overwhelming. So I said, well, I'm just going to roll with I don't know. But I kind of think like what you're doing, and we'll come back to this at a later point, but like, and what I'm seeing a lot of right now is a lot of people realizing you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater when you've grown up in a culture or a religion for so long. At a certain point, a lot of people I feel like have to come back and reckon with it and recontextualize it, I suppose.
1: Mm. and I think I mean I think the important thing is an important part of the journey is going into the void um, because many people that leave Mormonism they so Mormonism is this very interesting phenomenon in that I mean I kind of envision it as um, if you have like a side scroll side scroller line drawing and there's this big pit and you're on the one side of the pit and you've got this huge tower that you've built up and you're trying to like swing. You've got this rope that you can swing to the other side. Um, but like Mormonism is this unique high demand religion that like tells you, you have all the answers and you kind of look down, not look, not, uh, um, hopefully not condescendingly, a bit like, Oh yeah, we've got the truth. We've got the authority whatnot. And then once you, once it all comes crashing down, like it creates a lot of um, energy and it's very uncomfortable and it puts you into chaos and existential crisis. And some people, I mean, it's so uncomfortable that some people just cling for something. And oftentimes they, you know, cling onto whatever's left of the structure or cling onto something else. Um, which is atheism or scientific materialism. But if you harness that energy uh, and just kind of let go of what you were on, you can use that and, and swing through the nihilism over to the other side, I think.
0: i'm just starting to learn a little bit about mormon theology i guess because my personal passion with religions has always been the ones that are extremely fringe or strange and mormonism kind of is once i've gotten into uh who joseph smith was and some of the things you're mentioning and realizing that he does have these ties to freemasonry and occultism and gnosticism that it is actually very very fascinating but you kind of think about it growing up like oh it's these people in like white collared shirts and uh missionaries and you think it's just a slight variation of of christianity or something like that so i hadn't given it much thought until the past couple of months when i've been looking into it a little more here but i guess i wanted to go into as far as mainline quote-unquote orthodox i guess you could say mormonism goes what you've mentioned some of them, what are some of the things you would say are different than mainstream Christianity and what's important to understand?
1: Um, so essentially Mormonism teaches that Christ, you know, that there's always periods of where the truth is on the earth and then it goes into apostasy and then it's restored and Christ came and he set up his church and he gave the priesthood authority um, to his apostles and said mm-hmm. essentially set up a church an organized church that was meant to continue to exist and set up you know ordinances of baptism things that you had to do um, mm-hmm. to attain salvation and then that that church with the authority the priesthood went into apostasy and then, Joseph Smith in the 1800s was looking through the different churches, realized it didn't add up, had a mystical experience, although you're you're, you're not given any context that other people really have these mystical experiences. He saw God and Jesus, essentially, and um, was told that he was going to restore the church. And part of that process was there was a record um, that he was led to by an angel that was the record of that. Principal ancestors of the Native, you know, it's kind of changed over time, but essentially the ancestors of the Native Americans that came from um, Israel 600 BC and they had this uh, culture here And eventually the good ones were killed off, but Jesus came and visited here and That is his that's the keystone of the religion of the Book of Mormon because that's how you know that he was really a prophet Um, but Joseph Smith got the priesthood back from Peter, James, and John and restored Christ church and it's here the- theology wise uh, the sort of unique things are they, they believe that the fall of Adam was a necessary thing so it's a little more Gnostic in that sense um, they believe that we existed before we lived as kind of intelligences we're um, spirit children of a heavenly father and a heavenly mother and that we had to, we want to become like them. The plan is to become like them, and you have to come down here to get a physical body because God has a perfect, perfect physical body. So unlike Gnosticism, physical is good. Um, you have to come down here. There's the fall, so there's sin and death. Christ overcame both of those. Everybody's going to get resurrected, but to, to be redeemed from sin, you have to uh, be baptized and. Have the Holy Ghost given to you confirmation, and then um, they also believe in uh, eternal marriages, so that you know your marriage is until death death do you part. And once you die, you'll get resurrected. There'll be a judgment and that instead of it's, it's a bit more universalist, so instead of heaven and hell, um, almost everybody's going to heaven, but there's three degrees, the highest being the celestial kingdom, and then there's true terrestrial and telestial but the celestial kingdom is where you become like god and it and yeah that means yeah. have your own worlds um and the, only the very a very very select few who like commit the unpardonable sin of like having a perfect knowledge and denying would go to outer darkness um
0: that's so. a version of hell of some sort yeah but it's really
1: but it's fairly universalist in the sense that that's taught to be such a very Uh, few people and even like the telestial kingdom is is so much better than here so fairly universalist
0: i mean so yeah that was one of the things that i did kind of just learn recently was this idea of that at the highest level you basically become a god is that that's correct that's what you were saying Mm -hmm. i suppose um so i i want to ask more about well i want to ask about joseph smith and i think i already kind of have the answer to this based on listening to you talk or at least what your opinion on this is but do you think that what joseph smith experienced was genuine or do you think that he was a con man as a lot of people like to claim or is the answer somewhere in the middle between those two things
1: Yes, somewhere in the middle, I think, you know, the common narrative is that, like, in both sides, you know, that anti-Mormon side and the church push this idea, like, it's black or white. He's either a prophet or he's a fraud or he's a prophet or he's, like, inspired by Satan. Um, but there is the idea of a pious fraud, um, which is, you know, somebody who really believes what they're teaching. um, But they justify using some uh, deception along the way. And um, and I think that definitely fits him. And I think what's tricky is that as you learn about um, spiritual awakenings, and and I use that in a more scientific sense. You know, one of my podcast episodes, um, episode six, uh, we review a... Um, a scientific journal article about the phenomenon of spontaneous spiritual awakenings or Kundalini awakening. So these are, you know, uh, research experiences, mystical experiences that happen endogenously, no substances. And there, there's a lot of overlap. I mean, there's a whole continuum between psychopathology and a mystical experience. And the line is often gray between psychosis and Uh, spiritual phenomenon. And sometimes what makes the difference is how that person is able to integrate the experience and contextualize it. Um, So I'm reading a book right now. on It's a psychoanalysis of Joseph Smith by a a physician. And he's making the case that Joseph Smith's early childhood surgeries, he had a couple surgeries um, when he was seven without anesthesia, caused a dissociative state that which is where a lot of these came from. Um, I think there's some merit to that, but I think the the biggest evidence for him having, I mean, I think what makes the most sense is that he really believed a lot of these things. Um, most people that leave the church don't entertain that idea because they don't have any context or experience of mystical experiences. They may have had some good feelings in the church, but it's easy to dismiss that. You know, they often call them elevation emotions and kind of dismissing it. But, you know, if you look at his account of the first vision, uh, which which is what's referred to when he supposedly saw God and Jesus Christ, which there's a few different accounts of it. And it's unsure if that's a composite of other experiences, you know, multiple experiences or something that he's kind of retrofitting to it. Uh, But if you look at that and you look at the theophanies that he writes about in his scriptures, um. It definitely meets the criteria that's used in research for, um, mystical experiences, you know, religious, mystical and psychedelic mystical experiences, which are essentially the same, that research has been showing. And so these are transcendence of time and space, oneness bliss, um, sometimes very challenging experiences, um, a deep, like a noetic sense something that you, you know, you don't believe anymore um mm-hmm. Ineffability. So you read these things, and there's one um, instance. I'll find it here, where it's in the Doctrine of Covenants, where he's talking about these type of experiences, and it says um, somebody who experiences, he comprehendeth all things, and all things are before him, and all things are round about him, and he is above all things, and in all things, and is through all things, and is round about all things. And all things are by him and of him, even God, forever and ever. Um, mm. Which, if you, yeah, if you have any knowledge of mystical experiences, you recognize uh, that this is that is a mystical experience. And if he wasn't actually having them, it's very, very unlikely that he would know how to write that way yeah, and, yeah. and be able to check all those boxes.
0: Sure, and I think that's something that I really want to delve into with my show and that i've been really fascinated with for a while is just kind of that there is a bit of a a blurry line oftentimes when we're talking about religious leaders and even people we might call cult leaders i think a lot of people have the tendency to just say oh they're just con men they're just bullshitters but a lot of times if you spend time around some of these people you'll realize they do have whether it's psychological or what have you a lot of them genuinely like believe what they're saying and have had these experiences i don't think it necessarily means they're capital t true but that there is this element of reality to those mystical experiences at least for them and oftentimes for a lot of people involved with the groups as well i think
1: yeah i think the other um, compelling evidence that something was going on is the book of Mormon. And this is held up by Mormons as, you know, like how else could, a, you know, somebody who's uneducated and and they go a little heavy on that. You know, I, I don't think there's evidence that he was as uneducated as they say. Um, you know, how, how else could somebody so uneducated be able to do this? And Emma, his wife who scribed for him, um, you know, would say that he would leave in the middle of translating, and they'd go to dinner, and then he'd come back and he'd just pick up right where he left off. And so he did this using a seer stone, also called scrying. So essentially, he had a rock that he put in a hat that he put up to his face. So there's sensory deprivation. There's like focusing on an, an intense object. It's essentially a crystal ball. Um, and he also, you know, did it very quickly. Um, certain parts of it very quickly. And I mean, and there are some aspects of the Book of Mormon that are really inspiring you know there are some things that I resonated with and and still do um, and that's a big hang-up for people is like well obviously you know he couldn't you couldn't explain this with his intellect although some people try to and say he copied this or that but I think it requires a lot of hand-waving to to really commit to that the easiest explanation is if you maybe suspend your disbelief a little bit and look at all the other examples of automatic writing um, and you see like, oh, there's nothing unique about this. And in fact, there, everything that is supposedly unique about the book of Mormon, you know, the speed, the ability above his, his natural ability, the inspiration of it, um, the length of it, it's surpassed in other things like a course in miracles or the law of one or any of these other works and, and they actually make a lot more sense um mm-hmm. and they don't have the conflicting um yeah they, they have less hand waving required
0: yeah i mean that's that's what i wanted to get into there is that you do talk about how the book of mormon is a form of automatic writing or you could say scrying and i was even thinking about it today and thinking there's kind of some um comparison that could be made to like uh john d and edward kelly as well Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've looked into that at all just the whole yeah the process of scrying the automatic writing the involvement of angelic beings um it does yeah i don't think i knew a little bit about the seer stones i didn't know about the hat until a little while ago but now it's like oh yeah clearly there was the involvement of, like you said, like sensory deprivation to bring about a trance state, I suppose, mm-hmm. where this comes. Yeah, and out that's
1: of. this book that I'm reading. Um, it's called "The Sort of Laban and the Dissociated Joseph Smith Jr." It's by a um, plastic surgeon who dealt with a lot of burn child uh, children that were burn victims, and so it's very psycho. Analytic very Freudian and so um, s- Sorry Siri is a uh, thought I was talking to her um, All right, um, so this book is very uh, Very Freudian and so he I'm a lot more Jungian so he doesn't he attributes everything coming from Joseph Smith's subconscious, whereas you know, from a Jungian perspective it would be both his personal unconscious and the collective unconscious which i think makes a lot more sense but even from uh you know a subconscious level because they look at these auto- automatic writing pieces and, and often um you know it's used in therapy and it brings up uh subconscious elements and it's kind of like Jung's active imagination um even just from a materialist subconscious perspective it is very telling you know how many themes from his life uh, you see in the book of mormon this duality between the good and the evil uh nephites and the lamanites uh, right the there's a condem- a lot of his shadow comes out so there is this condem- gonna, condemnation of if,
0: yeah i might i think this is i was actually going to ask you for clarification on this because i was curious i think you're going to say what i was about to ask you about which is um are you ta- the the he initially condemns polygamy is that what mm-hmm. happens or yeah, so how in, does
1: this go? Yeah, so in the book more there's a few different things that he's very, you know, there are narcissistic traits of Joseph Smith. Um, and and I think it comes from these childhood traumas, shame, um, you know, potentially guilt and shame from uh, sexual stuff in his, his youth. Because um, he has some experiences of like how he... You know he followed the carnal pleasures and then was you know praying for forgiveness and that's where he had this experience or, um, so so there's a few things that are discussed very and condemned in the Book of Mormon. One of them is polygamy and says that you know polygamy the people are practicing polygamy it says it's like an abomination. Uh, it does leave a, it says it's not to be practiced except if the Lord commands otherwise to, like, raise up seed. So, it like, leaves a back door there, but it really condemns it um, for uh, kind of morality purposes. Um, interestingly enough, you know, the back door is to bring up seed. But then Joseph Smith has, you know, 40 wives, but he doesn't right. have any children by any of those other wives. So it's really hard to um, justify it that way. Justify it that way, um, but yeah. So polygamy is condemned. There are what they call secret combinations. So there's this group of people, Gadianton robbers, which you know might be anti-masonic, um, but they basically it's a secret society and they seek to overthrow the government. But then later, you know, years later, there's the Danites, which are essentially a secret combination uh, for the good guys that. Um, are involved in some shady stuff in Mormonism, kind of doing, mm-hmm. uh, taking care of naysayers and potentially a, a, a assassination attempt on I think the governor. Um, it Where also is uh,
0: uh, while they were in Navu. Yeah, um
1: I'm not sure the specific dates, but
0: um just later years finished a another podcast about that today and it's pretty fascinating to learn about them i guess attempting to i mean you can correct me on any of this here but them attempting to start their own masonic lodge but initiating a ton of people and basically pissing off the mainstream masonic lodges i don't know if you know anything about that
1: i mean i know he got into um freemasonry and nauvoo and then incorporated some of the rites in the temple Um, i don't know the too much of the specifics. I haven't delved delved into the Freemasonry side of things as much. Yeah. Um. Yeah. There's that that parallel. There's another character in the Book of Mormon that's quote quote unquote Antichrist and ends up getting, I think, killed. His name is Corihor. Interestingly enough, he he has a confrontation with the prophet and says, you know, you guys are silly. You know, there is no God. There's no Jesus Christ. You're just living all these rules when there's only this life and just enjoy it. Whatever you do, there's not nothing right or wrong. Um, and Joseph Smith later, again, later in his life, there is this concept of calling an election, being made sure or having the second comforter, which is like a visitation of Christ, but is essentially this kind of secret doctrine or the second anointing. Um, this um, not well-known ordinance where if you get it you're saved and it doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't commit the unpardonable sin and deny the holy ghost um that you're saved so it's still this you know kind of hedonist you know i think so i think it represents his kind of struggle with nihilism um and then yeah there's a lot of kind of sexist themes of women you know, King offering the prophet his daughter, um, a group sure. of priests stealing these daughters of, um, that were singing and bathing as their wives and then they end up with Stockholm Syndrome. So you see a lot of these themes um, that I think he was battling with himself and came out in the Book of Mormon that in the end um, he succumbs to. Um, right you know he doesn't integrate his shadow
0: do you think that's a universal thing in most or all religious texts that ultimately no matter how much they may be connected to a transpersonal experience they still kind of ultimately wind up reflecting the personalities of the person who's writing them even if it's scribed or automatic writing
1: um i'm i'm fascinated by the concept of channeling and, and I have a pretty broad perspective of it because I think that, again, there's this whole spectrum of people that are doing it in the religious sense. But if you look at, you know, Charlotte Bronte and her works, I think were essentially automatic writing, um, creative artists. You know, they often it's not a conscious effort. It's you know coming from another place. Um, but it, it only gets tricky when people are claiming divine uh, kind of authority so what my limited exposure to channeled works and i've listened to a podcast on the law of one some of the podcasts i'm not too familiar um but it is largely you know it's it's like water water will flow in whatever channel is available um but it's bounded by the shape uh and the turns and um, it also picks up whatever is in that channel and so some people are very clear channels and they've done their own work and they don't have these narcissistic tendencies and they have that you know secure base I guess in attachment terms and they can integrate their shadow and they, they, they let go and I think it also depends on how what state they're received into. So in the law of one, um, she's in a trans unconscious state. And so, and I don't think she was aware of what she was receiving. Um, Whereas people like Joseph Smith, um, if they're, if they're very committed to. uh, People like Joseph Smith, if they're very committed to a. Certain ideology, they—it's just going to come in uh, that language, um, and they're not going to be willing to um, let in anything that contradicts to, uh, that. And so, I think that's those are the main determinants of it. Um, and I think there's a, a wide range of people that have a very hands-off approach, and they—they've kind of deconstructed everything and they've ripped out the foundation. And so they can, they can bring down whatever is more true. Whereas some people they are not deconstructing much, or they maybe deconstruct the house, but they leave the foundation there. So it's just limited
0: by what's there. I mean, so that's kind of like the, there's a cultural aspect that comes through. I mean, for Joseph Smith, it was like being around the time of the, the great second great awakening. Right. and, I kind of wonder if he had those experiences and then also kind of there was a component of thinking oh this is a an opportunity that I can seize at this moment too to you know make it big I guess
1: Yeah but I think there that could play into it um but I think anybody that's had any mystical experiences I mean they know how infectious and otherworldly it is and um and so i think that that was but you also have these experience of like am i crazy and you have this internal struggle with yourself especially if you're not in a container have other people that can help you integrate and he didn't have the internet uh, he was also claiming to be a prophet so it's not like he can be like hey uh um sydney like i had this weird experience yesterday I helped me figure it out, help me integrate it, you know, facilitate this. Um, so he had to essentially wing it himself. And, you know, I think he had a lot of childhood trauma, both um, the surgeries and just the destitute conditions of his family. And then having an experience to whatever degree it's true and hearing other people say, you know, you're crazy or you're just trying to make money, whatnot. I mean, I think it just further. Um, adds on to the narcissistic vulnerabilities and doubling down. So, I mean, I think he's a very complex
0: individual. Was was there, there was sort of a, a precedent for that, like his mystical experience there with, from what I know, that he was doing sort of psychic treasure hunting before all of this? Do you know anything about that?
1: Yeah, so he was... Um, I mean, it it goes back, it goes back a a ways, depending how far you want to go back. I mean, I think his ancestor was involved in the Salem witch trials on like the accusing side. So there's uh, a karmic aspect of this too. Um, And, but I think his, so his grandfather, Solomon Mack had some, had like a conversion to spirituality and, got a friend, Alex Credo, who has drawn some connection to uh, epilepsy, which Solomon Mack had, and the common treatment for the time was Datura, um, which is a psychedelic, and so it could even have come uh, in the family that way. But his parents had um, kind of mystical experiences or um, potentially used Substances potentially. His father, his mom was a palm reader, uh, according to one account, and and I think there was some association with the family um, and a some esoteric rodsman. So people use the divining rod, but yeah. So he used a seer stone. There was uh, apparently somebody else in the area, Sally Chase, and he used her seer stone and saw his seer stone in it. And so he went and got his, sorry, every time I say that, uh, S I R I. comes up. Oh, yeah.
0: well, um, I set it off there. So. Uh, so
1: he used, yeah. So he got this stone and, um, and was guiding treasure digs and yeah. And it's interesting because he w- apparently was fairly well known for it, which makes you wonder right. w- why would he be well known if he didn't have some success. Um, and I, mean, I think he may have, probably not with treasures, but finding lost items. Uh, well, that, you know, was I'm something,
0: open. that was something that was brought up uh, in, in the podcast today that I, I found really interesting was that they were saying, yeah, like people were contacting him from out of state to be yeah. part of their treasure hunting parties. And they were like, he must have had something going on. I mean, yeah, I, I yeah.
1: I, I mean, I asked my friend Alex, who's uh, into very, he's a researcher in psychedelics and Mormon history and uh, an occultist himself. Um, yeah, and he said that they did have success. I'm not sure the sources for that, but I did, um, I at least know in the later history of the church in the late 1800s, and they're out in Utah, um, this is according to D. Michael Quinn, who's a Mormon historian's book on magic and like the, it's early Mormonism and the magic worldview kind of contextualizing folk magic. Um, seer stones came with the church and there were people in the late 1800s, specifically women who were finding dead bodies, finding, uh, Uh, Horses and cattle, and were being sought out for their ability to do that. Um, And this threatened, uh, you know, the priesthood felt threatened by this because, you know, the men, I mean, this wasn't a priesthood authority. You know, the women don't have the priesthood in the church. And so that was kind of shut down. Um, So, I, I mean, I think that one of the things that you see is that people with some of these gifts or connections to metaphysical or uh mental planes it's often associated and people that end up going through spiritual awakenings is often a significant association with trauma or or difficult life circumstances and so um yeah i think his early childhood particularly this surgery i think could have served to make him more able to enter these dissociative states i mean some people do try to attribute psychedelics for the translation of the Book of Mormon um, and his experiences. And they may have been involved, but I think um, they don't need to be because there's plenty of those accounts of automatic writing pieces that I don't think psychedelics were involved. It's just a natural ability that some people had. I think psychedelics were involved in the group experiences in Navu and Kirtland, but I don't necessarily think they need to be um it doesn't really matter so much in the end when you recognize that the research is showing that there are altered states of consciousness and it's it's kind of modality independent Um,
0: i think that's something that sometimes can annoy me a little bit is that there's people who seem to constantly want to push the psychedelic angle on Mm -hmm. every mystical experience every religious text and I'm as big of a fan of psychedelics as anyone, but a lot of times that seems like you guys just want that to be true, but you're not considering that there are so many other angles you could look at that from. And it's also kind of a a materialist perspective in a way, I feel like, too, that the only way these mystical experiences could happen is through, you know, substances bringing them on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for people that have experienced them, there's a, maybe a predilection to pushing that as an explanatory factor because they haven't had experience otherwise. I mean, and it's so reproducible with psychedelics. For me, my experience falls under the, uh, the classification of Kundalini Awakening. So it was endogenous. You know, I had these feelings of oneness and bliss and um, actually visual not seeing anything that wasn't there but just this beautiful more colorful high resolution like 8k um not and not in like meditation it's just like connecting with somebody talking to somebody um wow so for me as completely endogenous like it totally makes sense Um, but if you've only experienced it after you've taken something even as much as you believe maybe the philosophy of like, oh yeah, this is just loosening the filter. You still, your rational brain always can say, oh yeah, but you just took something, you know, an hour ago. And then I think the people that don't have any knowledge of, you know, mystical states. um, Yeah. I mean that that's even more, I guess, kind of egregious just because they often refer to it as hallucinogens and they just, they're just not aware of the research that shows that um, they're, they're, they're not seeing the connection that religious mystics, psychedelic, psychedelic mystical experiences, endogenous mystical experiences, fasting, sensory deprivation, um, exhaustion, it, they all, uh, meditation, they all can produce uh, the, a similar or the same experience. Um, and that doesn't make sense because, yeah, they're coming largely from a materialist view.
0: I just wanted to elaborate on that a bit. And what I mean is that psychedelics are cool and all, but they aren't the end-all be-all of spiritual experiences. Well, I'm in full favor of psychedelic decriminalization, I do think that there is a kind of danger in attributing all spiritual experiences to psychedelia of some form or another. It is, in essence, just Rehashed materialism, and well, for some people materialism works just fine as a cosmology, I think for Gabe, myself, and likely much of the audience here, materialism is just simply no longer a valid option. But that also doesn't mean there aren't blurry lines between the material and spiritual mental realms either. And yes, psychedelic chemicals may very well unlock keys which shift our consciousness to new realms or open us up to the world of the collective unconscious or animistic realms of spirit, but let's not totalize these things as we have in the past, because the mystical experiences of individuals are paradoxically remarkable in both their similarity and their difference. For a better point of reference, Let's go ahead and see what Gabe has to say about some of his own mystical experiences. I'm, I'm curious about the kundalini awakening thing, and I you mentioned it in the email, so I, I wanted to ask about it. Um, did that happen when you were talking with this person? Was it under any sort of special spiritual circumstances it just happened out of the blue or i mean, what I mean do you it started me i mean it was
1: it? happened over happened over a long period like half a year of not consistent but just these higher states of awareness consciousness um starting off with you know i was getting into meditation i started doing some breath work too and Just one evening in bed, I had involuntary kind of contractions, muscular contractions, which I guess they call kriyas. Um, And this is a pretty common thing at the start of um, kundalini awakenings. And I also think there's like a parallel in Western psychology in in like somatic experiencing where they talk about um, trauma being released and animals shaking off trauma um, from their body. After escaping the cheetah, or whatever. And so I mean, I think there's all these different frameworks you can view it, and that that may have happened because of um, doing breathwork recently. I'm not sure. It was it was kind of an automatic thing, but I remember meeting with meeting with my therapist and really finding a safe space and allowing these parts of myself out. Uh, that kind of was the first experience that I had felt like this sort of nirvanic bliss. Um, and that was a new experience to me. And it was, yeah, just the safety and um, this amazing feeling. And I like, couldn't wait for the next time to to meet with my therapist. Um, and then, yeah, in some instances, there were really a lot of downloads or periods where I'm like, uh, just having these very meta thoughts of like, Oh like time is a construct because you know the past doesn't exist except as, as it's encoded in the physical world and our brains and the future doesn't exist so it's just the now and you know these thoughts and my friend um, who is familiar with psychedelics he was like, you're having very psychedelic thoughts and you're not uh, uh, taking anything um, but then then there were so there are some experiences of just like this blissful joy. Um, yeah kind of just natural high and then um about two experiences i think where i was i just gotten into learning about like the hindu perspective listening to alan watts and this idea that like oh everybody is another like a little part of god it's a part of me um and feeling this connection and this love for these people and like talking to them and just really kind of losing the ego and being mindfully aware and um, is interesting because they like it happened in two instances. Um, the other person just became very, very beautiful and not in like a worldly kind of cultural sense of beauty, but just as like you look at nature and you just zoom in and just appreciate the beauty or like look at the clouds um, in that sense. Um, and it was, yeah, it was like going from. 720p to 4k 8k resolution um, wow
0: colors. yeah it seems, so. seems incredible I mean do you I do hear a lot of times sometimes people will talk about these kundalini awakenings and they'll also mention that there are negative side effects to them did you ever experience anything like that or was it all pretty much a positive experience for you at the time you were going through it
1: Yeah, people have varying um, experiences, you know, from the, I guess, the Hindu perspective. They talk about, you know, it's this Kundalini energy. Oh, yeah, you know, I would feel this kind of buzzing energy going up and down my spine. It would go up in these higher states of consciousness. Any shame, guilt, lower, quote, unquote, vibration thing would would shut it down. So it's very interesting to kind of be able to see how connecting with my authentic self and being vulnerable and connecting would further this process. Um, but yes, the idea is that this Kundalini energy is rising through your spine, going through your chakras and they have to be clear because you want the energy to go out your head, um, through your crown chakra. And if it's not clear, it'll go out your side or something. That's the myth myth side of it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like, um, Lot of instances in which it would fall under like a spiritual uh emergency and there's some people online that uh there was kind of a stalled film project called when lightning strikes uh, and it was started by a lady who had a kundalini awakening i think she had done some yoga but she wasn't into any of this stuff and it really kind of rocked her world until she found a therapist that could figure out what was going on with her Yeah, I mean, it's very ungrounding because it just completely, especially if you're not aware of any of these things, which I wasn't aware of any Eastern philosophy, really, uh, was just getting into meditation. Never had learned anything about Buddhism or Hinduism. Um, Nothing about energy and any of these philosophical things. Very ungrounding. And, you know, I had a friend who, that one that, had said that I had psychedelic thoughts um, when I was like telling him what was going on. He's like, I think you should look up uh kundalini awakening. Cause he had, he had spent some time in Sedona uh, studying energy work, um, even though he's a computer programmer. And so he luckily like was able to ground me and kind of facilitate. And then I ended up meeting a, um, a friend who's a therapist out here. And uh, she was like, oh, yeah, I've been through this. This happened a few years ago. And like for me, th- you know, the doctors were checking my hormones and like she didn't know what was going on with her- herself, too. So it was immensely helpful to hear somebody that was like, yep, this it's normal. It happened to me. This is what happens. It doesn't stay like that.
0: Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's something that maybe concerns me a bit as people get more into psychedelics and new age spirituality becomes part of the overarching culture is that a lot of us don't have a cultural knowledge of how to handle some of these spiritual emergencies or a kundalini awakening or a mystical experience and properly integrate it and I feel like I've kind of seen that with friends of mine where like whoa you're going off the deep end a little bit Mm -hmm. we need to like ground ourselves and come back to reality but we don't have that we just have you know this over here we have protestantism which is one of the main streams of thought of america and then the other being like secular reality and then everything that's in between it but we just don't have these reference points unless we go and dig and then if you go on google you're gonna find 50 conflicting different things about what to do with the kundalini awakening I think and mm-hmm. it's tricky to navigate I feel like
1: Yeah for me I um I got transported to like a mountain peak and then came back and I had to like retrace my steps and figure out like how does what I experienced fit into science and logic and Ultimately, you know, my background is in, uh, in science, I'm a dentist, but I've got a bioinformatics undergrad, um, and I've always been very logical and rational. And that's part of, I guess, the unlearning that I had to do. Um, but I, but I, but I understand science pretty well and yeah, did a deep dive into philosophy and the study of consciousness and quantum physics and not in like a hand wavy way, but like. Just looking at what are the philosophical implications um, you know what what are these two perspectives of materialism versus idealism and my as a kid, I was interested in lucid dreaming um, did a little bit of that and I had tried to start redoing that um, during this period as I was you know going deep diving into psychology and my my introduction and way of integrating and understanding this uh, was helped by this book on attachment that I was reading that was talking about dissociative identity disorder. So that kind of gave me this model for how one consciousness can be fragmented into subconsciousnesses. And um, in the book I was reading, it had, you know, transcripts from therapy therapy sessions of somebody who healed and integrated all those consciousnesses into one so i had that as kind of a model a scientific model Um, and then i also was um, aware of the uh or use the tibetan buddhist idea which is sort of like inception of these kind of stacked dream states and the idea that when you dream your one consciousness uh, kind of manifests into a background other characters and then your little main character and so I mean, I use these in conjunction with my rational left brain and, and use those as models, but um, but yeah, I had to, to fit it all together, I ended up you know leaving materialism and um, realizing that idealism is the only thing that makes sense. Um, but you can still be very scientific and rational. it's just a, it's a would you yeah, have it's just not yourself?
0: Uh, would you have considered yourself a materialist for most of your life or at least, like, post-Mormon period?
1: Yeah, I mean, and even when I was Mormon, like, 90% of me was a materialist, and then there was some 10% that hoped that, you know, had some extra space for a whole different set of rules as it related to spirituality and religion. Um, But that's the beauty of really where we're at now um, Mm -hmm. with quantum physics and with... um, consciousness and eastern philosophy making its way into the west and um you you really can have a theory of everything or a meta framework that um explains how what we're seeing in science and what we're seeing in spirituality um all all does fit together one thing you know i think i've I've seen a lot of it's been really interesting to see accounts of people that End up starting their own cults or starting their own churches, having their own mystical experiences, and um maybe not going off the deep end, but not integrating it well. Um I think the the main things that I've seen is you know, the lit mist test for me is like whether you get the oneness thing, and if you get that. If you realize everything's one at the fundamental level um the idea of good and evil breaks down and it becomes positive and negative polarity that's all part of one and has to be integrated and when you when you get the oneness there's no hell anymore that you can like judge people to and cast them out and it changes your i mean you just out of necessity have to operate differently in the world and you recognize like oh these are all parts of me these all i have all these things inside of me um and i think that that's this point that you have to unlearn back to and when people don't tear down and unlearn back to that point um, they may have a mystical experience but then i then they that mystical experience is over and then they keep going and then they're really stuck in this polarized like we need to vanquish evil and we need to you know these people are gonna like pay and and I think that's um, I think that's associated too with kind of our own
0: guilt and shame and self-worth sure um,
1: but I think yeah, that's a, a key element
0: it seems like for me the mystics the saints that I personally respect all wind up having a pretty similar message of oneness and mm-hmm. in a way a lot of these messages can seem almost generic or cliche or like they're just a bunch of the same woo woo you've heard over and over again until you have a little glimpse of that experience or a personal contact with it yourself and then you realize yeah like they really are all pointing towards the same thing and that's why it gets so frustrating i think sometimes when we are involved with christianity or mormonism and i can imagine a number of other religions as well at times when there's so much emphasis on the internal politics of the church and who's right and who's wrong and you think shouldn't this all be about connecting to divinity the divinity within us the divinity within the world and that seems to be the farthest thing from what's on everybody's minds and mouths in those communities
1: yeah on the one hand it's you know people make it out to be such a ineffable and incomprehensible thing the meaning of life um but on the other hand like it's actually very easy to to deconstruct this i mean if you just use dreams. I mean, you, you know, we right now feel like we're in a physical world and we're touching matter and we are separate. I am separate than you. Um, and the idea from a 3D perspective that we're part of like one consciousness, that just feels foreign. Uh, but you just examine your dreams that you have every night, um, whether you remember them or not, and realize that that is an experience, that is a reality, conscious experience where you're touching what you think is matter, but it's actually mental. You're interacting with people that you think are other than you um, and a world that is separate than you, but it's an experience that is created by a mind. Um, and then if you, and it's all one and and people, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, you know, there's this idea of dream yoga where people meditate in their dreams and they can close up the dreams, basically, into this oneness bliss. Um, And when you become lucid in the dream, you have varying ranges of being able to change the reality around you. And, you know, the idea of reading another person's mind or having telepathic thoughts between you and another person in the dream or flying or manifesting things, like, that's not weird because that's, that's a dream. Um, and, and you realize that you, when you're in the dream, you're, you're positive that you're in reality. Um, and it's only when you're awake that you realize, oh, that, that was just, that was a dream, it's not real. But now I'm in reality, now this is real. Um, and so, I mean, that's just a very quick and easy way to have a framework that explains how the universe could be mental and all these other traditions and science backs up this idea of consciousness fundamental. And then once you have that, you know we can look into psychology. And, and if you know anything about psychology and therapy, you realize you know the, the therapy that heals is where you're not rejecting parts of yourself and saying, oh, "I can't believe I did this when I was younger," or "This, you know, I'm a terrible person." I, I want to feel better if I just never do that again. And no, it's it's actually doing the parts work and saying like, "Oh, like having self compassion and realizing." why that part of you feels that way and integrating it in and holding that part. Um, sure. And it's really coherence and harmony. I mean, that's that's how you get happy. Um, that's how you heal trauma. Um, and that's, that's the meaning of life too um, because mm-hmm. the universe mm-hmm. is mental.
0: From, I mean, in terms of talking about the universe being mental, I always feel like there's a bit of a an interesting conversation to be had around the terms like mental and consciousness versus saying everything is God, because I think people say, or maybe people hear the term, everything is mental. And they think that means everything is, you know, just these physical reactions in your brain, which is possible. But I think that the mystical assertion would be that consciousness is something that exists even before that happens. And I don't know if you'd agree with that.
1: Yeah. So, so you know, materialism would be the idea that consciousness arises from material, from matter, um, whereas idealism um, is, you know, matter arises from consciousness. Just like you're in the dream, you're having a conscious experience, and through that experience, you're experiencing something that you think is matter. Um, so our it's not our brain that's producing consciousness, um, but rather uh, our consciousness that is kind of rendering and uh, experiencing, seeing brains. Um, so it's right. the other way around.
0: And how does, do you feel that that is a uh, reality for you as you walk through your normal Life, whatever that looks like for you, do you see the world that way, or is it still uh, material for you most days?
1: Uh, I mean, it, you know, my mystical experiences and, and being in touch with like that, the five D, has uh, largely settled down. It was kind of like a a clogged pipe, and when. It finally got unclogged, you know, a lot of energy moved. Um, Then it comes back down. I'm in a different place and I have a different understanding. uh, But like the the synchronicities, the other stuff I saw, like does not happen nearly in that way. And there were, you know, there was a week where I was having some precognition kind of psychic sort of stuff. You know, that's uh, unfortunately gone. So, I mean, I'm attached to, you know, I, I understand that the idea intellectually um, but yeah, you, you definitely have, I've come to view our conscious experience as just these different domains of consciousness and like these, it's kind of this big map. And so like depression is, and this is what the science is showing too, like it's a state of consciousness, um, and you can have a very 3d physical, very, um, attached to just living in a 3D physical world Um, or you can have these more bird's eye views.
0: So when did you start bridging this gap between these mystical experiences and getting into uh, Mormon mysticism? And I think maybe we should just kind of clarify what that term Mormon mysticism means to you. Because, you know, I think people can tell by this point in the conversation that you're not a practicing traditional Mm -hmm. Mormon at this point so what what is that project about to you, and what what does it mean to you at this point I guess
1: um, I don't quite know. I mean I'm fairly new to this, and it's interesting because they you know I'm in some of these Facebook groups, and there's like half of the people are fitting mysticism into Mormon, and the other half are fitting Mormonism into mysticism mm-hmm. and um I think that's that's the interesting phenomenon that you have is like at first when you start getting exposed to these things or like Gnosticism or esoteric traditions you're like oh my gosh this like validates the Mormonism because you know all these ideas I mean it, you know they he was obviously a prophet and then the further down the rabbit hole you go you realize like oh but these traditions of course in miracles these other things like they actually are much more internally consistent. Um, and so for me, it was interesting because I had left Mormons, I hadn't made any like final conclusions of what happened. I was like, it just doesn't add up. And but I I didn't really resonate with the very negative and oh, it's all a fraud, you know, it doesn't quite make sense because you do have to do some hand waving about the Book of Mormon and um, how he kept these things from you know, tricked so many people. Um, and then it wasn't until like last year, as I was going through this journey, I had no intention to return to Mormonism or revisit that all, Mm -hmm. but I started learning about like Buddhism and I was like, Oh, all these, I mean, these are very, I saw the connections and kind of saw Joseph Smith trying to balance out, um, think where Christianity had gone with these more esoteric principles and then he yeah, had this idea of kind of inception stacked dream states and how it's like a dream within a dream within a dream um I was like oh this is what Joe Smith's talking about eternal progression but he just got it very literal and very oh it's you become God and then you have spiritual and they become a God it's a very uh literalistic view of it um, and so I just I had read a book, um, The Psychedelic History of Mormonism, Magic, and Drugs, by Cody Niconi. Uh, that was actually a really helpful book um, because it really introduced me to uh, mystical states and how there's exogenous routes and endogenous routes and it's the same destination, just different routes. Um, and so that connected that, which is I think something that, you know, it's another stumbling block that people uh struggle with is that they may have if they have a mystical experience and it's within a religious context you know through fasting or prayer or something um they're gonna see Jesus or God or Mary or something, and then they're gonna still interpret it within that religious context of good and evil and sin and you know God and Satan and not realize that God and Satan are inside of them um so yeah that introduced me to that. And then I just kind of went further. And then I was getting into more like new age, um, just kind of exploring the space and learning about star seeds. And, and I was like, oh. so Mormons, so there's a, the book of Abraham was uh, Joseph Smith's translation. Essentially he channeled um, a religious text by Abraham um and it was talking about Kolob being the star that God lived on and I was like and there's also this idea in the book of Abraham that like there was a council of uh council in heaven before we were born and the the noble and great spirits fallen you know we're going to go down and serve these roles and I was like this sounds very much like star seeds, this idea that there's consciousnesses from other star systems. And then I found there are some Mormon apologists who are trying to explain how Mormonism is true that were equating Kolob um, with Sirius because KLB is the Semitic word for dog and Sirius is the dog star. And Sirius was a... You know, major star for the Egyptians, which is where Abraham supposedly was when he wrote this thing. Um, I was like, Oh my gosh, like Kolob is sure sounds like Sirius, and uh, we all sure sound like star seeds. And it's really bizarre that Joseph Smith in the 1800s seems to be talking about star seeds and Sirius like way before any of the new age stuff got there, came around, um, yeah. and so they're just. Yeah, so there's these weird connections, and then I was like, that pre-existence and eternal life, eternal life exaltation after, like this just sounds like um, reincarnation, just like a snapshot of it. And sure enough, you know, there are accounts that he was teaching reincarnation too. So there's just a lot of um, very interesting connections that at first blush seems to support that joseph smith was a prophet but the deeper you get into it you realize like oh it's just it's just part of a whole bigger
0: uh framework right so yeah are you i feel like i have the answer to this but are you looking to do this as a i don't know what the right term would be like as a anthropological project of like analyzing it through these lenses or is it do you have a genuine desire to bring some of these teachings from that you grew up with, like back into your life? I mean, I know for me, I've been, uh, no reconnecting. Yeah. You can go ahead.
1: Yeah. But it's, it's helped me understand them a bit more. And there are aspects that like, I think Mormonism, um, gets sort of right. I mean, this idea that, you know, God's an embryo, our divine potential. I mean, that's, that is, uh, that is, you know, new age spirituality, esoteric. I mean, the idea that we're the universe inside of us and a fractal of universe. Um, that's very well preserved within, fairly well preserved within Mormonism. But all these things, I mean, there's, uh, Joseph Smith really just, dist- distorted a lot of these things and he got him. he was still stuck in a materialist perspective um so my my purpose one that i mean i had to piece all these things together and hadn't found anybody else that um had done it you know they're they're are individuals that like are really focusing on the psychedelic piece Are individuals focusing, you know, that have focused on the connection with like Gnosticism and some esoteric traditions and mysticism. Um, but I, I feel like I had to personally wrestle with and, um, reconcile spirituality with science and was able to do that really concretely. Um, I, I like, I don't know if you've watched Donald Hoffman's stuff, but I, I really mm. resonate with um, his view of reality. And, and I think it's very scientific and pretty bulletproof. Um, and then I, and I think that Mormonism is this beautiful case study um, that like proves all these things. I mean, you can see, I mean, yeah, it's one thing to be familiar with what the idea of channeling is and Uh, mystical experiences and the possibility that psychedelics were involved in uh, religion throughout time. But here you've got this religion that's um, less than 200 years old and it shows that all these things happened. Um, And you have like this book that's uh, evidence of it. So I mean, I think it's, I think it's really helpful uh, for people to be able to look at it and see like, oh yeah, this, you know, this does support all these things. So it took a while for me to piece things together and it was, difficult to do. Um, And so I want to help other people not have to do all that work and get to the punchline quicker. Um, And then I also see that there's a lot of people that are really just stuck in, you know, it's easy to deconstruct Mormonism, uh, but there's not a lot of people helping reconstruct. And if they do, you know, they're referring you to Eckhart Tolle or some other spiritual stuff, or maybe people do psychedelics um, and they can understand some of these concepts, but it's so helpful to be able to connect that with your um, kind of cultural origin. and be like, Oh, like that's why these things resonated with me. Not because they were true, but because they, they, they were from the same source. Um, and then I also find a lot of people that, yeah, they leave Mormonism and they're just, they just cl- cling to their new religion of atheism. Um, and they're so confident about that. They're just confident about that. And they're just as unwilling to question any of those. Uh and anything spiritual is icky to them. And if you try to talk about quantum physics, you know, they just, you know, assume that you've got yeah, you know, um crystals and whatnot. But I mean I think there's so they, they're very triggered by these things. Um, but I think that there's a very so I wanna kinda make a guide to like step by step without any hand waving, help people intellectually um, be open to this uh, space and then there's there's finally so many people in Mormonism that they really have had powerful experiences and they really resonate with these ideas um, of like, you know, the eternal nature of the connections that we form in this life and um, like the idea that we're kind of gods and embryo have that divine potential and um, and then they just feel like they see a lot of messy stuff in Mormonism, and it's getting messier and messier as um, there's more access to it. And there's some really good research, I think, um, going on. And they, their shelves, you, know, you talk about shelves and kind of post-Mormon, you know, they're what breaks your shelf and your shelf getting heavier. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it weighs on you a lot to have that cognitive dissonance to feel like, wow, The only option is to either stay and deal with all the stuff and like carve my own view on LGBT and carve my own view on polygamy and uh, these other things and have a really nuanced view or I just need to leave and think it was all made up. And that just doesn't feel right to them. So this is a a way for them to recontextualize and transcend through Mormonism rather than um, give it up.
0: that's what I was wondering, I guess was is are there people in this community that are still pretty much practicing Mormons or is it mostly people that have moved on from the church and are trying to um, like understand what happened to them basically? um it
1: seems like both I mean there's a couple people that are now know, that I connected with that see the big picture. And it's, I mean, that's one of the interesting, I think, evidences of this is when you see so many people converging, so many traditions converging on the same principles from different perspectives. Um, you can meditate your way there or you can do plant medicine and get to the same spot. So it was interesting to see some other individuals that had their own mystical, endogenous mystical experiences and then deconstruct Mormonism in almost the exact same way, like using Donald Hoffman and whatnot. Um, And so there's a few people that are in that camp, but then there is a lot of people um, in, in these groups that are kind of diving deep and they're trying to like, interpret the Book of Mormon through like astrological signs and like numerology and the Hebrew like this word goes to the Hebrew word where I think they're trying to squeeze blood out of a stone and I mean there may be some things there um but I think they're going in the wrong direction that may be working for them and I think that's good that they're going in that direction but I think that there's um a path of much Less resistance if you really zoom out and kind of question everything.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have been doing that with the Bible since forever, trying to find out what do these numbers mean, what's the mm-hmm. uh, you know geometric value of this or that. And at the end of the day, it it starts to maybe some people are onto something, but it starts to mm-hmm. verge on conspiratorial thinking a lot of the time for me. Um, How would the mainstream, for these people that are Mormons, still practicing Mormons, delving into this, how would the majority of the church body look at this? From what I can tell, it seems like the Mormon church has tried to distance itself at this point from any of the actual more mystical or occult elements of its origins.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there's the makings for, you know, a bit of a schism, I think, within the church in that you've got a group of people, you know, a lot of people are just leaving. Um, You've got a group of people, though, that are like, hey, the church is getting too woke. They're, um, They're, you know bending to these progressives and they're changing their, you know, they're getting too feminist, et cetera. And they're taking very more kind of fundamentalist perspectives as like, you know, the church has gone astray. Some are saying that it's like in apostasy, um, even within this crowd, some of them are going fairly fundamental and like getting back into polygamy and teaching multiple probations, which is what, they kind of uh, call what Joseph smith thought which is just reincarnation um except you keep the same gender um and others are kind of reacting and they're just really uncomfortable with polygamy and you know occult stuff and so they're trying to kind of retrofit it to be like no polygamy is wrong therefore joseph smith who i know is a prophet because i feel good when i read the book of mormon like he didn't do polygamy and he definitely wasn't into occult stuff and so those are all lies and so that's how some people are keeping their shelf uh steady and then they're are other people on the other end of the spectrum that are just getting much more nuanced and they're like hey We don't even need to believe the Book of Mormon is um, Historical but we can find value in it and Yeah, I don't really agree with the prophets on these things, but this is my community, you know, we can kind of evolve the church um, and, and there's also like some Some people that are kind of this younger Gen Z edgier, not following all the like traditional rules, but they're trying to make Mormonism work for them. And, um, one of them, Kwaku, uh, he's a comfort of the church, but he's very into uh, a lot of this stuff. He actually, on one of the episodes, uh, they spar with the anti Mormon group. Um, but uh, he said he watched Gaia, and so I'm like, ah, oh, that's where he's getting all these ideas, and so he's talking about a lot of these things, but again, within the Mormon perspective. So he's like talking about Edward Casey and how Edward Casey would have been the backup plan if Joseph, uh, Edgar. Yeah. Edgar Casey. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of all across the board, but yeah, I mean, the church has taken a pretty hard stance against, uh, anything that doesn't fit within their paradigm, but I think they're, doomed in the sense that you know psychedelics are here to stay especially for mental health and the, the church does care about mental health um and do advocate it but it's only a matter of time i think until people are starting to have these experiences and realize like oh that same thing that i felt was the holy ghost um i'm feeling that when i'm doing mdma therapy or i'm feeling right. that when i'm doing psilocybin for my mental health and then that just—I um, mean—that's the rabbit hole.
0: Do you do you think this split will? There is actually going to be a splitter schism between the church, or that? I mean, on the it'll on, it'll hold together in some. On form? the one
1: sense, no. I mean, that seems kind of crazy that I mean to stay together this long, and they've got a lot of money. Um, but on the other hand. I mean, it only takes like one apostle to have like a mystical experience through another, you know, it takes one person maybe going to uh, maybe get mental health treatment and they do some psychedelic therapy. And I don't know, like I, I, I don't know where it's going to go. You know, I think the the church is really um, scrambling to figure out how to, keep members and unlike mainstream Christianity, which they can keep sliding and sliding and sliding and, and, you know, accepting gays and ordaining women and, you know, having, yeah, they, they can keep moving to try to capture the audience. Mormonism has some very hard stops with women getting the priesthood and gender. Um, homosexuality and so they've they've gone as far as they can with that without some really radical shifts um, and they've said oh being gay isn't a sin it's just acting on it is um, which is a big change from how it was you know when I was growing up so I think it'll be very interesting to see where it goes and in addition I mean there's there's really good research and books and um, there's a psychedelic uh like a study group at harvard that's getting spun up um to to research um people that are interested in this psychedelic um, mormonism origins thing so um, do
0: you just on a personal level do you believe that there was a psychedelic origin to this stuff or like what's your intuitive feeling around it
1: um so i read um the immortality key, which draws a pretty clear connection between magic and psychedelic substances, exogenous, you know, altered states of consciousness. And so I, Joseph Smith was very much into folk magic, occultism. And so I think that that is a very strong um, indicator that it was likely involved as well as, I mean, there's some comments that Joseph Smith made, you know, wrote in his journal that he spoke to the brethren and said that hard liquors, you know, weren't necessary because you could achieve everything you needed to with roots and herbs. Um, I think it's likely that he had experience with them himself, but he didn't necessarily need to. Um, But I think that, the experiences at kirtland you know they dedicated a temple and plenty of people you hear the face faith, faith promoting side of things but you know people saw angels on the roof and etc but you don't hear the stories about the prophet's brother vomiting in the pews and people squirming around on the floor like snakes and wow. other people wielding the sword of laban supposedly around you know so there's It definitely uh, meets the um, checks a lot of the boxes you know they had the sacrament administered and so it's likely um, it makes a lot of sense that it would be in the wine and then in Nauvoo they had other experiences but on a smaller scale where they were using oil anointings and um, very likely was in that
0: what is the I mean you mentioned is that what we're talking about most likely here or psilocybin or what's the working idea
1: um, so there's a there's a paper by a few people one is a retired emergency room physician and then Cody Nacone and Bryce Blankenagel, and then I think this other guy um, they um, they had published a paper in I think it was the Journal of Psychedelic Studies in 2019 um, and they they Propose a few different possibilities, including Amanita muscaria, which would have been up in New York. um, And some of the, a lot of the things that he experienced in his first vision would have um, lined up with the effects of that. So Amanita muscaria, datura, which was, which to my understanding, datura is used in um, some native cultures, um,
0: potentially thinks, though is what i've heard that's like a, have heard it's more of a deliriant than a psychedelic yeah like it, and that's it what will,
1: there is there is a um another physician who's an apologist for the church and he he's tried to debunk this stuff and yeah and very much like oh yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't use this and you wouldn't use that um but but they it is used From their paper used in like Native, Indigenous, um, Native American uh, culture. So, Datura, peyote, so potentially, and it may have changed over the time, uh, over the years too, because it seems, you know, a lot of things were happening in Kirtland, but then it died down. I think it kind of got out of control. There's a couple of accounts of people that um, were at the, you know, non-members that went and they're like, yeah, there was definitely something in that wine. Um, But then it stopped after Kirtland. But then when they got to Nauvoo, um, it seemed to be happening in these smaller groups. They were holding what was called the School of the Prophets and they were anointing each other with oil. And then after that, they were having experiences for several hours later. Um, So the fact that these groups are having experiences Um, It's a lot harder to have a group have an endogenous experience. Um, And so I think that strongly points to there being substances involved.
0: You feel like there was maybe they did these couple of uh, times that they brought out sacraments or used whatever they whatever psychedelic substance they used was there to kind of create some true believers who had experienced that. And then they were like, okay, let's do risky. Let's take um, I that think away. It,
1: I think they, it, they were getting criticized in Kirtland, um, because it, they weren't all good experiences. There's some interesting accounts too, of like people being laid up for like two or three days. Um, and Whoa. I forget what substances, but some of these substances do have a long, it might've been Datura. do have a long so um, where, uh,
0: time. I mean, for my own curiosity and maybe the listener's curiosity as well, where can, what's the best place to look at some of those accounts around that? As so, far as books or wherever.
1: Yeah, so there's a few different, um, probably the place to start, I think is, um, I think it's it's called like the entheogenic, um, entheogens, let's see. There's a journal article in the Journal of Psychedelics, I believe. And that's probably a shorter, more accessible, uh, yeah, The Entheogenic Origins of Mormonism, a Working Hypothesis. Um, so as in 2019. That's a pretty good place to start. Cody Niconi. Uh, wrote a book in like 2021, I believe. Um, that's a lot longer. Um, the The my issue with both of those is that they they don't have like a meta narrative, and it's and it's focused very much on psychedelics, but they they don't comment at all on what the like spiritual significance of psychedelics are and how it would fit. Um, within, you know, philosophy, or what does that mean? That there are these things that can take you to this state. Um, Robert Beckstead had written a paper earlier in two thousand seven, um, and I forget what it's called, but um, that's his solo paper. And I like that because it it did bring in Jung into it and mystical experiences so because it wasn't like a scholarly piece i think he was free to include a little bit more of his own philosophical perspective but that that's i mean that's what i've tried to do is take it integrate one step further um so i think prob- actually probably my um, podcast episode two is probably the best overall view because um, it introduces just Consciousness, philosophy, idealism, materialism, and then I talk about um, all these concepts, and then you can kind of go down whatever rabbit hole you want to. Um, yeah, go down. I mean,
0: it's it's really fantastic, and that's the one that is the the substack article as well for people who yep. want to read it, right? Yeah. Yep. So I was gonna ask. I guess so we're getting towards the end here, but I did want to ask when when did you decide to start the podcast, and what inspired? going from just investigating this stuff to putting it out there?
1: Um, well, I kept drawing these connections and more things were falling in place and I didn't see anybody else putting them together. Um, and I would keep going back and forth between like, uh, it's re- like, who are you? Like, That's pretty crazy to, you know, you're not a historian. You're not, like, uh, a psychonaut. You're not, um, like, this is, you're pretty new to this space. Um, Who's going to listen to you? But then on the other hand, like, I didn't see anybody. I saw all these people talking about these things and, like, almost making the connections, uh, but nobody integrating it all together. And then I saw some of the stuff that is out there and being too heavily focused on one One perspective of like it's psychedelics or it's you know um, having one explanation for it when I think it's really integrating them all Um, and then and it also just was I couldn't really get it out of my head until I got it down on paper and so I I wrote um, a Substack article and then sent it um, you know posted a few places posted on Reddit and um, Eldon my co-host. Uh, reached out to me and read it. And interestingly enough, he lives like 45 minutes away from me. But he was like, oh my gosh, it's like a synchronicity. Like I've really, you know, this is kind of everything that I've come to conclusion-wise as well. Um, and, and that was the response that I got from a few people of like, oh yeah, like these are all the things that I've basically kind of come around to. I just haven't seen anybody put it all together. Um, and so... I just figured I'd do it to try to shift the narrative away from deconstruction to kind of reconstruction and recontextualization and be able to move past um right to uh, bigger and brighter things
0: and there's kind of that as you mentioned, like there's this finding the other's element too where since you've put it out there, you're able to find these people like your co-host for example who resonate with what you're saying or people who were thinking the same things you were but just weren't able to put it to words has the response mostly been positive or have you dealt with any criticism at all or is it yeah yeah
1: i mean the biggest biggest criticism is by people that just get triggered whenever quantum physics is brought up um and it's funny because they don't actually have any uh, valid points that they bring up. They just say, oh, like, I don't even want to listen to it now. You brought up quantum physics, you know, mm-hmm. and all this d this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but it's funny because I, I am um, very careful to like limit my conclusions because I actually don't think you need to, um, you don't need to make any like solid conclusion for quantum physics. All you need to do with quantum physics is like destroy your view of reality and then once that's destroyed you can build another view um yeah and so that's been the only i did um bill real is a big name in like the post-mormon uh community he runs uh an organization that has a bunch of podcasts under um him and i've listened to some of his stuff and he's you know he defines himself as an atheist but um talks about spirituality and talks about his ayahuasca experience and also says like, I'm not sure if that was happening in my head or what. And I'm also on the fence about these, you know, claims about psychedelics with Mormonism, but he's, you know, he's mentioning quantum physics and the, you know, the simulation hypothesis and all these things. And so I reached out to him a few weeks ago and we recorded, um, an episode and it was a really good discussion because, um, I feel like I bring that, um, Science is where I'm coming from and I think that's a really important Aspect whether you're talking about mormonism or just spirituality in general um, I don't there aren't that many good explanations of really like how uh, Idealism materialism quantum physics and how this all fits together. Um, There are some you know, I think donald hoffman does a good job uh, Eben Alexander, who wrote Proof of Heaven, he who's a neurosurgeon that had a near-death experience. There's a few out there that do a good job, but um, but it, this is, I think, it's a pretty new thing of like where we're at the point where we can really integrate things. And so he mm-hmm. and I are going to record another episode. We mainly just talked about reality and simulation and um, consciousness and stuff uh, for a couple hours. Now we're going to dive more into the Mormonism side of things. So yeah, I mean, it's been going in the right direction. I think this is where the post-Mormon community is going to. I mean, there'll be people still stuck in atheism and just being bitter and angry. And I think that's a, a, an important phase to go through. Um, but just as long as you get to the other side of it.
0: I think there's been a general cultural, and I guess I, I just spend a lot of time online unfortunately so i try to pick up on on micro trends and what's going on but i feel like there has been i mean there was a period of time somewhere there in the 2000s where there was a big atheist uh movement that was extremely popular whether that was richard dawkins or sam harris pre-meditation and you know his kind of new secular spirituality area era um but now i feel there is a lot of people kind of moving away from atheism whether that's literally returning to religion or for a lot of people i think it's just kind of integrating all these things that you are talking about and trying to make a vision of the world that isn't full of dogma in a religious way but also isn't totally devoid of any sort of meaning or mystical experiences as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, you know, everybody has their own definitions. Um, for me, um, for me, like I think religion is over um, for society. Cause I think I, I view religion as like good and evil, this duality, this battle, a showdown. And I think, um, spirituality for me is, yeah, this like full integration of science and um, what religion was trying to offer, um, but it comes without that baggage. Um, it comes down to semantics of people, but yeah, I think that that's the shift. And I think that's what Jung talks about. You know, part of my integration, the kundalini awakening, was reading Jung's lectures on kundalini yoga. Um, And he talks about Eastern philosophy coming to the West and how it kind of mirrors our own personal development, but it's like development for society of these two parts coming together. And he essentially talks about how important it is for us to be open to a new era and see that like Christianity and Eastern, Eastern traditions, like they've, they served a purpose and they got us here. And then like the worst thing we can do is to hold on to something after it's still um, after it's no longer useful, and I think AI is fascinating. AI and psychedelics, and this meta narrative um, incorporating like UFO and aliens and Sasquatch and Loch Ness, all into like oh these are conscious experiences. These aren't these aren't necessarily things living out in the wild. Like these are. So psychedelic experiences without psychedelics and the difference between seeing an alien and seeing an angel is just what you wanna call it. And so I think, um, yeah, there's a, we're on the cusp of a lot of interesting integrations
0: as society. Certainly it seems like things are getting a lot weirder both in good and, and bad ways, I guess, when you flip the newspaper up, like I just walked into a coffee shop and read the newspaper and it's talking about oh people in Las Vegas like I don't know if you saw that, mm. that story about <laughs> you know the police call where they're seeing 10 mm. foot tall alien beings along with all this talk of, of AI and is it going to become sentient or self aware and I think you know at times I can get a little paranoid about it honestly all of it I'm like what <laughs> what shifted was it my own spiritual experiences or my own psychedelic experiences that brought this whole new world filled with UFOs and AI, but I guess it was there all along, but now I think there's just more of a collective awareness of it, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, one thing I was thinking about the other day, yeah, because AI is like existential crisis or this amazing abundance and like Free therapists for everybody, and you know, we don't need to work. Um, And I mean, it ultimately comes down to like what you believe the purpose of the universe is, which to me, I think from this mental model, is coherence and self love and organization and um, understanding of itself, experiencing itself. And so, even if you subscribe to the idea that AI is gonna wipe everything out. Um, Consciousnesses are eternal. And so like, if you think about, you know, this idea of reincarnation, which I hold fairly loosely in the sense that like, yeah, you can remember past lives, um, but all the lives are you, all the past lives are you, and everybody else is you as well. Um, So there's been this trend um, over history, pushing towards this awakening in this consciousness and that trend will continue. So in the scenario that AI wipes everybody out, like the consciousnesses are going to come back, you know, we'll just, I guess come back in AI or something like that. the the, the pattern will continue. And so I just, I'm hopeful for things, although I think there's always a death before the rebirth. So it'll, it'll be painful too.
0: Right. I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm that scared of it in a, uh, like, from an existential point of view because I do hold this kind of consciousness being, you know, the primal element of everything. And that, to me, that I can sub-consciousness uh, for God as well. That mm. God is that primal base-level awareness that, you know, is underneath everything but i do think there are like material concerns in the meantime as we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out artificial intelligence and that that freaks me out more than just you know everyone being wiped out or whatever i think it's more how how is humanity going to live through massive changes that scares me
1: but, yeah um, and it's you know. i mean i look back at my last year and a half, and it was, you know, one of the most, I mean, the, the most painful, difficult time of my life. Um, but I, I, I'm so grateful for it because, like, that's what. I mean, it's it's only when the forest burns down that you can have that um, regrowth, uh, that rebirth. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think that I'm hopeful for things, but. It, there's always that death um, that's mm-hmm. involved. And so...
0: But that's yeah. also the, the evolutionary potential as well is there, I suppose. And I think that is a good note to end on. I did want to ask for everyone who's going to be listening to this. Um, I already... We'll be mentioning your podcast at the beginning, but is there anything else you want them to know or where they can go to find you?
1: Yeah, I mean, just the podcast, Mormons, Mystics, and Muons. And yeah, thanks for having me on the show.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I was originally going to cut it to a much shorter length, but Gabe is just such a brilliant and informative person that I wound up throwing almost all of it in there. If you like what you heard from Gabe, please go check the links to his podcast and substack in the episode description. I highly recommend it. Just a little update here regarding the show schedule for the next couple of weeks... I am in the process of moving halfway across the country, actually. So it's a little hard to make time for editing a podcast like this in the middle of all this life stuff, but I love doing this, and as soon as I can, I'm going to be trying to get the next one out. I'd like to put this show out on a weekly basis, but sometimes it ends up being every couple weeks instead. But hey, I hope it's worth it wait for all the freaks seekers and skeptics who are out there listening i have some bumper stickers coming in for mystical america this week which i am extremely excited for so stay tuned for that that's going to be up on the instagram but in the meantime i'm isaac as always this has been mystical america may all beings be happy peaceful and freed from suffering Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Amen, amen, amen. Good night.